I love Christmas music, and I'm one of those weirdos who starts playing Christmas music around November 1st every year. And like many of you, one of my favorite Christmas songs is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. I actually hate that line in the song where it says, um, someday soon we all will be together if the fates allow. The fates? Are you kidding me? Those are, the, those are three goddesses in Greek and Roman mythology. I know it's meant figuratively, but I don't like that line. And uh, I'm happy, I'm pleased to know that the songwriter, Hugh Martin, he didn't like that line either. In fact, he's a Christian. He was a Christian. And he um, originally wrote, If the Lord Allows. But the producers of the movie Meet Me in St. Louis, the Judy Garland movie where the song debuted, they didn't want the song to be too religious. So they asked Martin to make that change. And did you know that that is not the only change that's been made to that song because the very next line. Uh, okay, so do, do you know the next line after if the fates allow? Okay, I'm gonna, let's, let's just sing it together, right? I mean, it's Christmas, right? Um, someday soon we all will be together if the fates allow. Hang a shining star upon the highest bough, right? That's not right. You're wrong. Every one of you is wrong. <laughs> That's not what the line is. You go back and watch the movie Meet Me in St. Louis. That's not what Judy Garland sings. Do you know what she sings, David? She sings, Until Then... We'll have to muddle through somehow. We'll have to muddle through. <laughs> it turns out that when Frank Sinatra was recording his great Christmas album in 1957, he asked Hugh Martin to change that line. He said, the name of my album is A Jolly Christmas so would you mind making that line jollier? He said, would you jolly up that line for me? And so that's when the songwriter changed it. He changed his song again. He jollied it up. Well, between Isaiah chapter 39 and chapter 40, it's almost as if someone said to the prophet Isaiah, listen, Isaiah, your, your book up to this point has been pretty bleak, pretty depressing, pretty pessimistic. Would you jolly it up a little bit? <laughs> I mean, you've been telling us the story of how the northern kingdom of Israel is going to be destroyed because of their idolatry, because of their pride, because of their faithlessness. You've talked a lot about God's judgment, God's wrath against sin. And in the previous chapter, Isaiah 39, um, 
the prophet has even warned King Hezekiah. I mean, who in terms of biblical kings is a, is a relatively righteous one. Um, he even warns Hezekiah that because of Hezekiah's sin, the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, was also going to be conquered. And its inhabitants would be taken into captivity in Babylon. So, at the beginning of today's scripture, that's where the Israelites are. They're in Babylon, a long way from home and seemingly even farther away from their God. So please, Isaiah, can you jolly it up? (laughs) Of course, no one told him to do that, but they may as well have. When you consider words like these, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. If you read the first 39 chapters, you will appreciate that this These words represent a dramatic shift in tone. Last week in my sermon on the second coming, I talked about biblical prophecy and how it often works. Remember how I said that Jesus blended together a prophecy about the destruction of the temple with the prophecy of his second coming. And, and the, the destruction of the temple happened in, 70, in, the, in the year 70 A.D. And of course, we're still waiting on the second coming. But he blended them together so well that it was sometimes hard to know where one event ended and the other began. Because that's how prophets often speak in Scripture. Um, there's a near-term fulfillment of prophecy, and there's a long-term fulfillment. There's, there's a partial fulfillment now and an ultimate fulfillment in the distant future. There's a small event happening now that foreshadows a much larger event happening a long time from now. Does that make sense? Because that's what's going on in today's scripture as well. Isaiah is prophesying 150 years into the future when Jews would be living in exile in Babylon. And on the one hand, he's encouraging them with words about their eventual return home to Judea, which took place 70 years um, after they went into captivity. But Isaiah is talking about much more than that. He's not only talking about God rescuing Israel from captivity in Babylon, he's talking about God rescuing the world from its captivity to sin through God's Son, Jesus. That's the meaning, for instance, of verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Not just Jews living in this particular time and place, but everyone who's ever lived. In fact, we know from the four Gospels that the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, was none other than John the Baptist. Jesus says so. The Gospels say so. So 
all the promises of today's scripture to Israel in this particular time, in this particular setting, in this particular place in which the people were living, also apply to all of us Christians who have been grafted into God's people Israel through faith in Christ. So let's try to figure out what this scripture means. Look at verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare her, or hardship is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Let's pay close attention to that word pardon. Um, gosh, it sounds like this scripture was ripped from today's headlines, doesn't it? I was reading just last week something about presidential pardons or potential impending presidential pardons. I'm not passing judgment on it. I'm not making a political statement one way or another, but it's absolutely true that a president has the full authority. He has total authority to pardon whomever he wants to, and it's often controversial. Historians, for instance, tell us that if President Ford had not pardoned Richard Nixon, then he likely would have won election in 1976. So it's controversial often. But when a president issues a pardon, people often say, it's not fair. But I think they miss the point. Of course it's not fair. Not usually. Because receiving a pardon has nothing to do with fairness. You're not pardoned because you earned it. Being pardoned means that you were first found guilty under the law. A judge or a jury found you guilty, but a pardon wipes the slate clean. You're now innocent under the law. And that's what God says has now happened to his people Israel. They were guilty under God's law because of their sins. They deserved punishment and yet they received a pardon. Their sins were forgiven. But listen, Isaiah says that actually much more than that has happened. They've received more than a pardon. Look at verse 2. God's people not only received a pardon, but she, Jerusalem, which represents Israel, has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Most people read those words and they think, oh, that means that Israel has been punished twice as much as she deserved for her sins. But that's not what the prophet says. There's no mention of double the punishment for her sins, only that she received double for all her sins. What does that mean? Well, it's more like she's received double payment for her sins. In other words, God's people received more than just a pardon, more than just forgiveness, more than just God's decision not to punish them or not to punish them any further. Let's say that I go to jail for stealing from my employer. I'm in jail, but I receive a pardon. It's true that I'm no longer guilty under the law. It's true that I'm not in jail anymore. It's true that I may not have a criminal record any longer. But guess what? I'm probably not going to be able to go back and work for my former employer. 
I'm probably not going to be able to get my old job back. My old boss is not going to trust me enough to let me go back to work for him, and I'm probably going to have a hard time getting work from any other employer as well. You see what I mean? If my relationship with my former employer is going to be completely restored, I need more than just a pardon. And this is where the gospel comes in. What Christ accomplished for us through his life of perfect, sinless obedience to his heavenly Father and his atoning death on the cross goes way beyond a pardon. Think of the parable of the prodigal son. You have this guy who took his father's money and squandered it almost literally on wine, women, and song until he's broke and he's starving in a distant land. When he decides to go home, he only wants one thing from his father. He wants the bare minimum from him. Even though he's certain that his father is justifiably angry at him, even though he knows he can never be a member of the family again, even though he knows that there's no chance that his father or his older brother will ever trust him again, he just wants his father not to punish him for his sins. To work as a servant so at least he can have three square meals and not starve to death as he is doing now. But what happens when he returns home? His father is not only not angry, he's overjoyed. He gives his son the royal treatment. Bring, the, bring my best robe and put it on my son. Give him my ring. Let's kill the fattened calf and have the biggest party the world has ever seen. This is more than just a pardon. This is more than just forgiveness of sin. This is something better, something deeper, something far more profound. And the theological word for that something is imputation. First, our sins are imputed to Christ or transferred to Christ on the cross. Our sins no longer count against us. They count against God's Son, Jesus, and he suffers the penalty for them. The imputation of our sins to Christ is what makes God's forgiveness of us possible in the first place, and it is amazing. Uh, Isaiah himself describes imputation better than anyone, I think, in Isaiah chapter 53. Listen to these words. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the first part of imputation. But there's more. Christ didn't just suffer and die the death that we deserve to suffer and die on account of our sins. He lived this perfect, sinless life of obedience to his Father that we were unable to live for ourselves. And it's as if 
His record of righteousness, his record of perfect obedience gets credited to our account or imputed to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made him to be sin. God made Christ to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That means that when God our Father looks at us who are in Christ, he no longer sees our sin. He no longer sees the the filthy rags of our own lame attempts at righteousness. No, he sees the righteousness of his son Jesus. We stand before God now, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. And as a result, as hard as it is to believe, as a result, our Father loves us every bit as much as he loves his only begotten son, Jesus. And why not? Because through faith in Christ and the new birth that we have through the Holy Spirit, we now have become God's beloved sons and daughters through adoption. That's what Paul and the rest of the New Testament teaches. We become children of God through adoption. Speaking of which, many of you remember probably that I myself am adopted. I was adopted. And (laughs) I, I learned something about my mother and uh, her experience with the adoption not long before mom died. She told me that for the two years after mom and dad brought me home to become a part of their family, for those two years, my mom lived in fear. She said, I was afraid someone from the adoption agency was going to knock on the door one day and say, I'm sorry, Mrs. White, there's been a mistake. We're going to have to take Brent away and give him to someone else. And listen to what my mom said. Um, I wish you had known mom. She was was something else. Um, She said, I don't know why I was worried about anyone coming and taking you away from me because I would never let that happen. No one was going to come and take you away from me. They would have had to fight me if they wanted to do that because that's how much I loved you. That's one of the, the sweetest, most loving things that my mom ever said to me. Now, consider verse 9. Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Isaiah is describing a herald or a messenger who watches his mighty king win a great war over the enemy. And it is now the messenger's job to go up on the hilltops and shout the news of the king's victory to everyone who could hear. But listen to the next verse. Behold, 
the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So, this describes God, our victorious king, bringing back the spoils from the war that he has just fought and won. In the ancient world, those spoils would normally include things like the enemy's gold and silver, um, the enemy's livestock, uh, uh, shackled soldiers from the enemy's army who have been vanquished and who are now going to serve as slaves um, in the, uh, to the king. That's what words like reward and recompense usually mean in this context. So you get the picture. Isaiah says that, that the Lord God, our king, has fought and won a great victory in war, and he's bringing home his reward. And what is God's reward? The next verse tells us. Look at verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. You see, the imagery has now changed. The king is no longer a mighty warrior. Now he's a gentle shepherd. And his reward is this flock of sheep that he's leading home. He has rescued his lambs, Isaiah says. He's gathered them up in his arms and is carrying them in his bosom. Does that ring a bell? I'm thinking of Jesus Christ, our good shepherd, who leaves behind the 99 sheep to go and find the one lost sheep. And when he has found it, Jesus says, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he goes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me. I have found my sheep that was lost. We are the Lord's reward and recompense. We are the sheep that he carries on his shoulders. We are the people for whom the Lord fought and won a war against sin, against Satan, and against death. We are the ones, we are the ones who bring our Lord such great joy. Listen to Jesus' words in John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Christ, our good shepherd, fought and even died for us. Remember my mom's words? <laughs> That's what Jesus does. But even more so because Jesus loves us perfectly. Jesus loves us to the fullest extent of love. God, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. <clears throat> Remember at the top of the sermon, I was talking about the original words of have yourself a merry little Christmas. Someday soon we all will be together if the Lord allows. Until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. Listen, I suspect I am talking to some people who feel like they're muddling through this holiday season right now. Indeed, I'm probably talking to some people who feel like they're muddling through life. 
Today's scripture demonstrates the lengths, the great lengths to which our Lord Jesus went to rescue you. He's pictured as a mighty warrior who fought a war in order to win you, to make you a part of his family forever. Suffering and dying on a cross, suffering hell on the cross is the hardest thing we can imagine doing. But, the Bible says, you were worth it to him. You were his reward for suffering and dying on the cross. Your life brings joy to our Lord Jesus. And Jesus is also the shepherd who holds you in his arms and carries you in his bosom. Do you think that such an all-powerful Lord who loves you like that, who cares for you like that, who is guiding your life at every moment and in every circumstance, who makes you lie down in green pastures and leads you beside the still waters, do you think the Lord wants you to just muddle through I mean, sure, it may feel like you're muddling through right now. But the Bible says that God is working at every moment and in all circumstances for your good. The Bible says, in fact, that everything happening in the universe right now is working out for your good and in your best interest. If it feels like you're muddling through right now because your life isn't going according to your plans, hold on. It's only because God's got a better plan for your life than you're able to imagine. It's only because God hasn't finished working his plan for your life. It's only because you're somewhere in the middle of the story of your life that God is writing and you haven't seen the ending. You don't know the ending, but God does. And when you see it, when you see how his plan for your life works out, you'll see the blessing. You'll see the glory. You'll see the love. It'll all make sense. So hold on. Don't give up yet. That was, that was Isaiah's message to his fellow Israelites in captivity in Babylon, and it's God's message to us Christians today. Amen? If we're Christians, therefore, we're never simply muddling through. We're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do you believe it? If so, can you say hallelujah? Amen. Almighty God, give us the faith to believe this glorious message of redemption through your son, Jesus Christ. Remind us indeed that Jesus, our good shepherd, has not only made a way for us to have eternal life, but that in all the circumstances, in all the trials, in all the difficulties that we may be facing right now, our good shepherd isn't going to abandon us. Our good shepherd hasn't forgotten about us. Our good shepherd is leading us through to a better future then we're able to imagine. Let us be inspired and motivated and comforted and encouraged by that glorious gospel message. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Tacoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will come and worship with us at Tacoa First. We have live in-person worship every week, and we also have online worship 
please see tacoafirstumc.org for more information.